The Weapon in Christ's Conflict by Adolphe Manot And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil, etc. Luke 4, 1-18 My dear Christian friends, admonished by the conflict of Jesus, of the combat which awaits us, assured from his victory that we too can overcome it, it remains for us to examine the weapons by which he has conquered, and by which we too can conquer in our turn. Before entering upon the subject, it would have been pleasing to dwell upon the preparation of Jesus for the conflict. It would have taught us what is requisite in order to be in a position of defense against the attacks of the tempter. And this is half the victory. But our theme expands with its study, and this discourse would be too long. We must confine ourselves to a statement of the main ideas. Let us, at the outset, cast aside a slavish imitation which substitutes the letter for the Spirit. In order to be conformed to the example of Jesus in preparing for his victory, we have no need to go to the desert to get rid of temptation. In order to be conformed to the example of Jesus in fasting forty days, we have no need every year to bind ourselves down to a forty days abstinence. By acting thus, we should expose ourselves to temptation, not guard against it. Here we should bear in mind a principle of which the imitator of Christ should never lose sight. To imitate is not to copy. Jesus was filled with the Holy Ghost when he was baptized and praying. This was the secret of his strength. Let us pray without ceasing, that we may be filled with the Holy Ghost. For he who is full of the Holy Ghost is also full of wisdom, of faith, and of power. Jesus has just been proclaimed by God his beloved Son, in whom he is well pleased. This character, while it designates him, as we have seen, for the tempter's attacks, strengthens him also against them, because it permits him to apply to God as to a Father who hears him always. We need that the Spirit should bear witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, his well-beloved children. We shall thereby be the more exposed to the assaults of the enemy, but also the better able to resist him. Whosoever is born of God overcometh the world. Jesus is led by the Spirit to meet the temptation, and he does not encounter it of his own accord. Hence his confidence. Where God is the guide, God is likewise the defense. Let us not court danger. Peter paid dearly for having set at defiance all warnings, and forced his way into the temptation, which, he had been told, would overcome him. John 18, verse 15 and 16. When Jesus enters into the court of the high priest, John follows him, because he was known of the high priest, but Peter remains outside. John leaves the court on purpose, and speaks to the doorkeeper, that Peter may be admitted. Let us do all we can, in order that the trial may be spared us. If this cannot be, then we shall meet it with the freedom which springs from a good conscience, and with the strength which accompanies humility. Finally, Jesus fasts before and during the temptation. This fasting which the devil makes use of against Jesus gives at the same time new strength to Jesus against the devil. Our Savior fasts whilst praying, and in order that he might pray. His abstinence is explained to us by that of Moses, who on two occasions fell down before the Lord forty days and forty nights without eating bread or drinking water, an example which has been abused elsewhere, but which we have too much neglected. The use to which both Jesus and his apostles apply fasting shows us in that exercise a means sometimes necessary to wrestle successfully against temptation. This kind of spirit, 
can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Besides, abstinence from food is connected with an abstinence more general and always in season, which consists in subduing the flesh and its propensities. I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. Make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Satan has his footing in the flesh. When the flesh is bridled, he loses his hold and is powerless. Jesus being thus prepared, let us follow him to the enemy, and see by what weapons he obtains the victory. The weapons of Jesus, say we rather, the weapon, for he has but one, it is the word of God. Three times tempted, three times he repels the temptation by a simple quotation from the scriptures, without explanation or comment. It is written. This one expression tells upon the tempter like a tremendous discharge upon an assaulting battalion. It is written, the devil withdraws for the first time. It is written, the devil withdraws for the second time. It is written, the devil gives up the contest. God's word is the weapon which Satan most dreads, a weapon before which he has never been able to do aught but succumb. Most justly does Paul call it the sword of the Spirit. Revelation one sixteen, two sixteen, nine fifteen through twenty one, Hebrews four twelve. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And John describes it, in the Revelation, as a sharp two-edged sword proceeding out of the mouth of the Son of Man. With that sword of the Spirit in our hands, our cause becomes that of the Holy Spirit himself, and we shall be as superior in strength to our adversary, as is the Spirit of God to the Spirit of darkness. Without it, on the contrary, left to ourselves, we shall be as much below him as is man's nature below that of angels. Adam fell, only because he allowed this sword to drop. Jesus triumphs, because no one can wrest it from his hand. But why is it that the Son of God, instead of meeting the enemy with some new sword brought from the heavens whence he came, took up our only weapon, from that very earth where Adam had with such cowardice left it? This is for our example. From what that weapon accomplished in his hand, we must learn what it can do in ours. Let us, then, take it up in our turn, or rather, let us receive it from him, resharpened, as it were, by his victory, and we shall have nothing to fear. To all the adversary's attacks let us oppose a simple, it is written, and we shall render vain his every endeavor. The devil would entangle you again in the snares of the world. He proceeds with consummate skill in this attempt. Insinuating himself into your company, he represents to you that it is scarcely compatible with charity that you should keep yourself so distant from the society of men, that a better way to win them over to the gospel would be to frequent their social meetings, thus showing them that your religion is not that of anchorites. Lastly, that too many precautions do not become him who would grow strong in Christian virtue, and that there is no glory in a triumph obtained without peril. Thus speaks the tempter. If you only resist by your own understanding, you will be the more easily convinced in proportion as your natural heart is but too much inclined to his suggestions. But if you take up God's word, if you answer in faith, it is written, Be not conformed to this world. This one quotation puts everything in its true place. The adversary is unmasked, and his malice confounded. 
The devil would make you disbelieve that Christian faith is the only way to salvation. He takes you to some large square in a great city to point out to you the multitudes passing to and fro without intermission. He says, Can you really think that all these are on the road to perdition? Neither your understanding nor your heart can respond to such a doctrine. And yet, for the most part, these people do not believe in Jesus Christ. At least their faith is not yours, not that of those like you. Is it true, then, that the only path to life everlasting is the little track in which you go? Are not your ideas on this subject narrow and unworthy of God? Thus argues the tempter. If you resist him only with your own wisdom, you will not hold out long against him. You will return from the fight uncertain, trembling, and spiritless. But, if taking up the word of God, you unhesitatingly reply, It is written, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The spell is destroyed, the snare is broken, and you are escaped out of the hand of the perfidious fowler. Once more the devil wishes to take away from a faithful minister of Jesus Christ all the vitality of his preaching. He recommends him not to be so inflexible, not to cry out heresy for such trifles, not to make heaven so inaccessible and salvation so difficult, and not to throw gloom over the goodness of grace by imaginations of a devil and a hell. This new course, by gaining him the good will of all his hearers, will enable him to bring them more surely to the faith, and turn to a more profitable account the precious gifts which heaven has bestowed upon him. Thus advises the tempter. If you consult nothing but your own light to refute him, you must needs fall into the snare. So skilful is he to make good appear evil and evil good, to make light seem darkness and darkness light. But if you rest upon God's word, if you answer with assurance it is written, If a man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. The strong man has found a stronger than himself, and he has only to quit with consternation the field of battle. Oh! If we did but know what the word of God can effect even in our own hands, if we knew the terror with which it inspires our formidable adversary at the very time when he affects to laugh at it in our presence, that he may induce us to give it up. If, after having heard him, on the theater of temptation, scoffing at the word of God, we could, allow me the expression, follow him behind the scenes, and hear him confess to his accomplices that he is lost if he cannot succeed in wresting from our hands this irresistible weapon. If we did but know all this, and if, like the valiant Eleazar, we could keep hold of our sword till our hand clave unto it, oh, then we should be invincible, yea, invincible." But in order that the word of God may have in our hands the power it possessed in those of Jesus, it must be for us what it was for him. I know of nothing in the whole history of humanity, nor even in the field of divine revelation, that proves more clearly than my text the inspiration of the scriptures. What? The Son of God, he who was in the bosom of the Father, and who could so easily draw his resources from himself, preferring to borrow them from a book which he finds in our hands, and to derive his strength whence Joshua, Samuel, David derived theirs? What? Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, calling to his aid in that solemn moment, Moses, his servant? He who speaks from heaven, fortifying himself against the temptations of hell by the word of him who spake from earth? 
Ah, how can we explain that astonishing mystery, or rather that wonderful reversing of the order of things, if for Jesus the words of Moses were not the words of God, rather than those of men? If he were not fully aware that the holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit? I do not forget, my dear friends, and I here address myself more particularly to the young ministers of the word, I do not forget the objections which have been raised against the inspiration of the Scriptures, nor the real obscurities with which that inspiration is surrounded. If they sometimes trouble your hearts, they have troubled mine also. But at such times, in order to revive my faith, I have had only to glance at Jesus glorifying the Scriptures in the wilderness, and I have seen that for all who rely upon Him, the most embarrassing of problems is transformed into a historical fact palpable and clear. Jesus, no doubt, was aware of the difficulties connected with the inspiration of the Scriptures, and the part of the Scripture which he quotes the Old Testament is that which presents the greatest of these difficulties. Did this prevent him from appealing to its testimony with unreserved confidence? Let that which was sufficient for him suffice for you. Fear not that the rock which sustained the Lord in the hour of his temptation and distress will give way because you lean too entirely upon it. Whence comes your perplexity about inspiration? Is it from the variations of the different manuscripts? These were unavoidable without a perpetual miracle, and in the days of Jesus there were already various readings for the Old Testament, which he here quotes three times. Is it from the little discrepancies of the sacred writers when they describe the same event, such, for instance, as we find in Luke and Matthew in the very history which constitutes my text? Discrepancies quite equal to these exist among the books of the Old Testament, for instance, between the Kings and the Chronicles. Is it from the degrees of inspiration? Are you afraid lest there should be less inspiration in the historical than in the prophetic books? Jesus uniformly quotes the Scripture as an authority which cannot be broken, and in the passages we are now considering his quotations were all taken from an historical book, Deuteronomy. Finally, do you hesitate about the theory you should adopt respecting inspiration? What its mode or its extent? What it leaves to man's agency, whether it directs the mind of the sacred author or his pen? And other questions of similar nature. Here again, take example by Jesus. He enters upon no explanation concerning all these speculative points. But when the practical question is at issue, when that question is the confidence with which you may quote the scriptures, all the scriptures, and even a single word of the scriptures, then it is impossible to be more clear, more firm, more positive than was he. Go, and do likewise. The quotations of Jesus prove only the inspiration of the Old Testament. The inspiration of the New Testament has its peculiar proofs, and rests equally, though in another manner, upon Christ's authority. Besides, except the Jews, no men, receiving the inspiration of the Old Testament, have rejected that of the new. Quote the scriptures as Jesus quoted them, and hold respecting inspiration whatever theory you will. Jesus takes a higher position than that occupied by our theological systems, one more free from earthly influences. Let us follow him to those heights where we breathe an atmosphere that is luminous and pure, and where the vapors with which our world obscures the truth of heaven will settle beneath our feet. Ah, when the devil attempts again to insinuate into your mind some one of those scholastic subtleties which he has always in store against the inspiration of the scriptures, content yourselves with referring him to Jesus. 
Why didst thou not say all this to my master, when in the wilderness he repelled thee by that word which now seems to thee so weak and so uncertain? Go, carry to him thy quibbles, and when they have shaken him, then may they shake me also. Jesus had no other weapon against Satan than the word of God. But how does he handle this weapon? Let us study each of the three quotations which he borrows in succession from the scriptures. Thus, as by his example we have learned the power of God's word, so by his example shall we also learn the use we ought to make of it. After forty days and forty nights spent in the wilderness, Jesus is conscious of hunger, from which he does not appear to have suffered during the course of his fast, everything here being supernatural. Then it is that the devil draws near and begins his attacks. We have already had occasion in another place to contemplate the three temptations in the wilderness, from what may be called their external side, that is to say, in relation to the objects to which they refer, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Here we consider their inward character, I mean the feelings through which the devil hoped to cause the Lord to yield, and which properly constitute the spirit of the temptation. Viewed thus, the first temptation is one of distrust, the second one of unfaithfulness, the third one of presumption. The devil begins thus, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. The moment was well chosen, and the temptation subtle. The tempter would have Jesus employ, for his own personal advantage, the divine virtue, with which he is invested as the Messiah, admitting him to be the Messiah, which, at the same time, he would perhaps induce him to doubt. It was as if he had said to him, Employ the means at your disposal to supply your wants, instead of depending upon God, whom you call your Father, but who appears to have forgotten you. Had Jesus yielded to this proposition, concealing as it does so mischievous a design under the appearances so benevolent, he would have forsaken God's ways by having questioned God's assistance. He would have used his power just as Satan had used his for his own private satisfaction, and so the work of redemption would have been destroyed at its very beginning. Hence he refuses the enemy, without hesitation, by meeting him simply with this plain answer from the Scriptures, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. This quotation may, perhaps, seem to you strange, and hardly suited to the occasion. You will think so no longer when you have ascertained its meaning. It is taken from Deuteronomy, and from the history of the people of Israel in the wilderness. Observe that the two other answers of Christ to the tempter are borrowed from the same history and the same book. Whence comes it that Jesus, with the whole field of Scripture open before him, entrenches himself against the attack of the enemy in this particular place, as in an impregnable fortress? It is because he perceives a secret parallel between himself, the Son of God, preparing to lay the foundation of his kingdom by forty days' fast and temptation in the wilderness of Judea, and Israel, that other Son of God, qualified for the conquest of Canaan by forty years' privations and trials in the great desert of Arabia. Israel, who is presented to us as a type of the New Testament church, is also the type of Jesus, the head of that church, in whom it is complete. Therefore, Jesus instructs and strengthens himself by what is written for Israel. Admirable connection of the scriptures. Wonderful unity of spirit in both testaments. And he humbled thee, says Moses to the people of Israel, and suffered thee to hunger, and fed thee with manna which thou knowest not, neither did thy fathers know, 
that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, or as our text has it, by every word of God. Bread is the usual means by which God provides for man's subsistence, but not the only one he has at his disposal. For the secret of the nutritive virtue resides not in the bread, but in the command of God, from which alone proceeds every power and every blessing. If bread becomes assimilated to the substance of our body, it is because that word said from the beginning, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth. To you it shall be for meat. And if instead of pronouncing that blessing upon wheat, the same word had pronounced it upon stone or wood, wood or stone would nourish us as well as wheat does now. Nor would the sight be more astonishing than that of the word sweetening the springs of Mara, or of the rock supplying Israel with water in his thirst. Without God's word, bread itself could nourish no one, and we should eat it without being satisfied. But that word can, independently of bread, feed whom it pleases, and as it pleases. God proved this abundantly in the people who were with Moses by nourishing them forty years with manna, which ceased to fall from the day they set their foot upon cultivated ground. Nay, the word of God can support the body of man without bread, without manna, without visible means of any kind. On two occasions Moses lived forty days on Mount Sinai without eating bread or drinking water. Elijah journeyed also for forty days towards the same mountain and across the same wilderness without food or drink. Jesus, in his turn, led by his Father's will into a desert where everything was wanting, was there so marvelously sustained during his forty days' fast that he did not even suffer hunger. He relied to the end upon him who led him into the wilderness to be supported in the wilderness. As for the choice of means, he cheerfully resigns it to his Father's wisdom, having learned from Moses that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Scarcely had this scripture taken in its intimate and deepest sense been quoted, then it overthrows the whole effort of the enemy and annihilates his first attack. My dear friend, whenever the tempter induces you to call in question God's assistance because ordinary means are wanting, answer as Jesus did, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. You have hitherto earned with some exertion your own bread and that of your family, but suddenly employment fails, or your health give way, or your usual resources vanish. This is an opportunity which the devil will not neglect to improve. He will not dare to propose to you to deceive or to steal, but he will say, Has God thy father no other banquet for thee but those stones and those thorns amidst which he allows thee to vegetate? Well, since he forsakes thee, help thyself. Be not afraid of wandering a little from the beaten track, and of providing for thy wants by some of those means about which you are too scrupulous. Speculate. Try the dazzling chances of the gaming table. Be less exact respecting the choice of thy acquaintances. Flatter without scruple those whose protection may be necessary to thee. Command this stone that it may be made bread. Let your answer be, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. The God whom I serve can deliver me, and he will deliver me. But if not, I will not turn aside from his paths, and should I die of hunger, I will abstain from every appearance of evil. Your soul's sustenance gives rise to similar temptations which you must repulse in the same spirit.
You find yourselves confined in a spiritual desert, shut up in an abode where your heart faints for the courts of the Lord and for the communion of His people. You are bound to a situation, engaged in a society where everything is directed against your growth in grace. For you, the way of sanctification is hedged up with temptations and impediments. But it is God who prepared this desert for you. It is He who selected this position. You cannot leave it without violating your imperative duty. This family to which you are bound is that of your natural relations whom God has commanded you to take care of under the alternative of denying the faith and being worse than an infidel. In moments like these the devil will say, Is it not time to provide for the welfare of thy soul? Put an end at any cost to that state of things which renders the Christian life impossible for thee. Command this stone that it be made bread. Let your answer be, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. The blessing comes from God, and is restricted to no human circumstances. I am where my Father wills me to be. That is enough. He who at his will turneth the wilderness into a standing water, and dry ground into water springs, is also he who can turn the most terrible temptations into precious means of grace. He will keep me in all my ways except in that of disobedience. You are a minister of God. Under the manifest direction of the Lord, you have been appointed over a church where remarkable blessings have unceasingly confirmed your calling. But the church is poor. You are so yourself, and as you begin the year you know not how you will be able to meet the expenses which each of the three hundred and sixty-five days of it which is composed will bring with it. Dear brother, you are truly in a wilderness, but in a wilderness to which God has led you, as if by the hand. The devil then says, The God whom thou servest so faithfully is forsaking thee. For so many years that thou hast put up thy request to him for thee and for thine, what has he done to relieve thy becoming solicitude? Why delayest thou? Give up so wretched a situation. Seek some other sphere of duty which may supply thee with thy bread and thy water, thy wool and thy flax, thine oil and thy drink. Command this stone that it should be made bread. Let your answer be, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. God, faithful to those who are faithful, has resources ready at hand for all my wants, wherever he has sent me. He has never left me to want. As long as I am convinced that the place I now occupy is of his own appointing, I shall remain and quietly wait for his salvation. Answer thus, my friend, and God will be your support. Not a few of your brethren have been visited as you are, they have waited for the Lord, and now that God has shown unto them the salvation promised, to him that ordereth his conversation aright, they would not exchange for all the gold in the world the lessons they have derived from their distress. The first temptation has been overcome. Overcome by God's word, the devil has recourse to another. And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, all this power will I give thee in the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. How did this mysterious scene take place? We are ignorant. I have already said that I come to this narrative as a child, and without endeavoring to penetrate the hidden things which are for the Lord our God, I go straight to those revealed things which are for us and for our children. There is much to be learned here concerning the wiles of the adversary, and the means we should employ in order to escape them. What must we think of this boast of Satan? 
that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. It is compounded of truth and falsehood, like all the insinuations of the adversary, for if they had the character of truth alone, the very object of the father of lies would be defeated. If the stamp was exclusively that of falsehood, his designs would be too apparent. It is too true that Satan exercises in this world a prodigious empire which he holds from sin, and which he dedicates to the service of sin. He usurped it in Eden, where, not satisfied with possessing himself of the spirit of man, that king of the earth, we see him taking the place of the king of heaven himself as the object of man's obedience. We need only cast our eyes around us to perceive the fatal power which the enemy has acquired over us, History, politics, science, art, literature, everything connected with glory and beauty bears too striking a witness to the sad fact. For this reason Satan is called in the scriptures the prince of the world. Such is his power over it, and even, O oh shame, the god of this world, so much is he adored in it. But this power of Satan, such as it is, has been delivered unto him, and this he is obliged himself to confess." Having then been delivered to him, it is not absolute. He exercises it under the control of God, who makes it subserve the final accomplishment of his own purposes. And if Satan is the prince of this world, God alone is its sovereign, ruling in the kingdom of men and giving it to whomsoever he will. Further, having been delivered to him, it is not eternal. It will be taken from him, when sin on which alone it rests shall have been abolished, and it is to abolish it that the Messiah came. He appeared to destroy the works of the devil, and to build upon the ruins of his empire a new kingdom, which shall never be dissolved. That which Satan dares to claim here, that which he pretends to make over to the Son of God, really, then, belongs to that Son to whom the Father has promised the heathen for an inheritance in the uttermost parts of the earth for his possession. However this may be, Satan offers to Jesus what he can give, and perhaps what he cannot give. He causes to pass before his eyes all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, the pride of power, the eclat of riches, the splendor of luxury, the vanity of honors, the intoxication of pleasures, and all those earthly pomps which excite so violently man's desires. Then he tells him, All shall be thine, on the one condition that thou wilt worship me. The spirit of the second temptation consisted in inducing the Son, instead of waiting for and conquering the inheritance promised by the Father, to receive it at once and without a conflict from the hands of Satan, by rendering him the homage due to God alone. This temptation has something in it more revolting than the first. The condition to which the empire of the world is attached is nothing short of a compact with the devil. Thus Jesus no sooner hears the impious proposal than he lays aside for a moment the calmness which characterized his resistance, and for the first time calling Satan by his name, he repels him with a holy indignation. Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. This quotation arrests immediately the enemy's efforts and sends him back a second time, defeated. Here things are so clear, Satan's proposition so detestable, and the reply of Jesus so simple that any explanation would be superfluous. Not so, however, with the application of the subject. However detestable the temptation may be, God's children are all exposed to it, 
and, however plain the answer, it is important that we should know always where to find it. There is not one among us to whom an alliance with Satan has not more than once been offered. I thus designate a tacit agreement, by which a man engages to serve the God of this world in order to secure the world's favor, an agreement by which a Christian perhaps consents to do homage to Satan for the purpose of making sure in his impatience of the glory which comes from men instead of following by faith the glory which is from God only. Let us give a few examples borrowed from the experience of youth. The most common form under which Satan proposes to us his odious alliance is the lust of riches. A moral, pious young man has just entered upon business. The hope of making a brilliant fortune takes possession of his mind. How is this hope to be realized? Among other means, some suggest themselves which generally obtain in the world, but which are sinful, lies, deceit, injury to neighbors, lawsuits, family divisions, neglect of God's service, Sabbath-breaking. What is this but the devil saying, If thou wilt worship me, all shall be thine? Alas, and how few fortunes have been made without some concessions to Satan! Answer him, my young brother. Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Let Satan keep all his advantages, since he puts upon them such a price. Do not beg from the devil the deceitful semblance of a glory, the reality of which God will bestow upon you, if you are faithful. Besides, even here below the blessing comes from God. Godliness has the promise of the life that now is, and of that which is to come. Sometimes Satan's alliance is concealed under a project of marriage. A young lady is treading faithfully in the paths of the Lord. By her fervent and yet modest piety she is an example to her companions, an honor to the church, a blessing to the world. Her hand is sought by a young man having every advantage, fortune, intelligence, rank. He is amiable, and perhaps beloved, but a stranger to piety, to whom she cannot be united without endangering her faith. This again is Satan saying, If thou wilt worship me, all shall be thine. See what a prospect opens before thee, what honor, what happiness, what love. Wouldst thou be deprived of all this, and for what? For the sad pleasure of leading an austere and gloomy life? Keep thy faith. Thou mayest only conceal it in thy heart, and be of the world whilst thou art in the world. How can artless youth resist a maneuver of the enemy so cunningly devised by this simple word? Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Yes, my young sister, answer him thus, and your victory is secure. The grace of our Lord is sufficient for you. Go and lay down quietly at the foot of his cross all the dreams of happiness which your poor heart has entertained, and you will find in the love of God enough to repay with interest your greatest sacrifices. The sanctuary is no shelter against the offers of an alliance with Satan. A young minister, enriched with the choicest of God's gifts, enters into the service of the church. He can aspire to the glory of the world, to the applause of men, to the most lucrative or influential offices, but to obtain these he must either preach the doctrines of the age, or accommodate truth to its fastidiousness, or join in the frivolity of its pleasures, or make common cause with it against God's children. This again is Satan saying, If thou wilt worship me, all shall be thine. How many young ministers perhaps yield to this temptation? 
How many a Demas has forsaken his brethren, having loved this present world? How many have believed on Jesus, yet do not confess him, because they love the praise of men more than the praise of God? Oh, my young friends, be faithful, be unmovable. Answer, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. If you seek to please men, you will not be the servants of Christ. Confess Jesus Christ for your God, his word for your rule, and his people for your people. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive from his hands a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Twice overcome, Satan makes a last attempt, for which we may presume that he will collect all his stratagems, all his resources. He brought him to Jerusalem, and set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee, to keep thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. In order to understand well the spirit of this temptation, we must oppose it to the first, with which it forms an evident contrast. The tempter had endeavored in vain to make Jesus doubt his father. This means the first which he generally employs, and which succeeded but too well with Eve, had failed before the firm faith of Jesus in God's assistance. Then the tempter conceives the hope of seducing him by that very confidence, although a perversion of that confidence. He disguises himself as an angel of light. He surrounds himself with holy things. He conducts Jesus to the holy city, places him upon the pinnacle of the holy temple, and encourages him by the holy word of God to throw himself fearlessly down, that he may give to the multitude, by the miracle of the promised protection, a striking proof of what he really is. Yes, but was the hazardous act proposed by Satan to Jesus necessary? Was it according to God's will? Did it present the conditions required to make the promise of the 91st Psalm applicable? Had Jesus yielded to the suggestions of the tempter, he would have presumptuously claimed his father's fidelity. He would have used God's word more as an amusement than as a support. He would have created the danger for the frivolous satisfaction of obtaining the deliverance. And that deliverance failing, he would have risked the glory of God as much by his blind and presumptuous confidence as he would have served him by humble and obedient faith. Therefore he answers without hesitating to his treacherous adviser, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. What is tempting God? Why would Jesus have tempted God by throwing himself down from the pinnacle of the temple? To tempt, or to try God, is, as the natural meaning of the word indicates, to put God upon trial, and thus to test his faithfulness, while faith simply trusts to God and relies upon his fidelity as upon an immovable rock. Faith speaks thus, God has said, and will he not perform it? The only pledge he asks of his promise is the promise itself. He who tempts God speaks altogether another language. Can God do it? Will he do it? Then, in his anxiety to solve his doubt, he takes upon himself to prescribe to God certain conditions which he must see accomplished before he can rest upon his promise. The Israelites tempted the Lord at Rephidim by asking water to drink and asking in such a spirit that they would judge from the reception given to their request whether the Lord was amongst them or no. They tempted him again at Kibrath Hatava by demanding a new species of nourishment, and by saying, Behold, he smote the rock, and the waters gushed out, and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? 
Can he provide flesh for his people? Under forms less gross, the same spirit reappears in the Christian church. The new disciples who opposed the apostles in the council of Jerusalem tempted God by seeking to impose upon the converted Gentiles a yoke which they themselves had not been able to wear, whereby they seemed to impose upon God the necessity of an extraordinary outpouring of his grace such as they had no right to expect. This conduct is the more reprehensible, because when the Lord is thus provoked, if it please him to refuse the conditions which men have thus dared to prescribe, either his character or his word will seem to be at fault. False confidence borders upon distrust, and presumption upon unbelief. Their principle and their results are similar. Jesus, in his turn, would have tempted God if he had thrown himself down from the pinnacle of the temple. For having neither command nor necessity to impel him to so strange an act, he could not say, God will help me, but at most, will God help me? Will he conduct me safe to the ground? Let me try. Had he said this but once, he would have been defeated. But his refusal, his quotation from the scriptures, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God, disconcerts the adversary's plan and puts him to flight for the third and last time. Dear brethren, Satan can tempt us also to tempt God. Examples abound. The difficulty is only in the selection. Silver and gold belong to the Lord of hosts, for an undertaking formed for the glory of God, and conducted according to his Spirit, we may expect from him the needful resources. He will not put our faith to shame, and certainly, without that faith, the noblest works of Christian piety and charity would have been stopped at their commencement. Franke, Cotolingo, Mary Calame, for instance, would have failed in their respective missions. But beware, under pretense of confidence in God, of rushing inconsiderately into the first path which opens before you. Here, too, you will have to guard against the suggestions of Satan. He will prompt you sometimes to mistake for an inspiration from God a design which notwithstanding its plausible appearance tends less to his glory than to your own, sometimes to incur, even in the execution of a plan approved by God, which are neither commanded by necessity nor consistent with evangelical simplicity, sometimes to anticipate impatiently the time of God and to thus disturb that slow and sure progress by which he delights to ensure the success of the cause, whilst he brings into exercise the submission of the instrument. What dost thou fear? the tempter will say. O oh, man of little faith, go on in the name of the Lord. Give, promise, purchase, build, do whatever thy hand findeth to do. If thou art a child of God, trust thy father, cast thyself down. Listen to him, and you will find yourself insensibly bound by obligations which you cannot meet. Then the gospel will be compromised in the eyes of the world, which will say, when it beholds your unfinished projects, This man began to build, and was not able to finish. And you yourself may be annoyed by pecuniary difficulties which will break your heart if they do not shake your faith. Avoid so great an evil by walking carefully with God, by tempering the liberty of Christ with the prudence of Christ, by forsaking the trodden path only to answer a manifest vocation, or to obey a sure direction of the Spirit. This is the secret of prayer. In all other circumstances thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Let this be your answer, and this the ground of your peace. Fathers and mothers, you are about to supply me with my second example. Lend me an attentive ear. I will suppose the time to have come for your son, 
or your daughter to leave the paternal roof and turn to account the resources of public instruction, either to complete their studies or to form their mind and character? What principles will guide you in the selection so serious and so difficult of that second family to whom you are about to entrust your child? If you think above all of the one thing needful, you will experience the truth of this promise. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. But if, too anxious for the glory which comes from men, you seek before everything else for your son the means of distinguishing himself in the world, and for your daughter the means of pleasing the world, if you place them for years in a circle where the name of Christ is neither honored, loved, nor perhaps even known, nay, if you surrender that confiding spirit and inflexible intellect to the influence of a proselytism blind, obstinate, and whose very scruples your own recklessness seems to have tried to overcome, what will you have done but tempt God? The voice that then whispers, Are not the advantages of a brilliant education worth some sacrifices? Besides, cannot God preserve thy child from the contagion of error, or the seduction of example? Cannot you win him over to piety, except by a kind of Bible persecution? Whence comes that voice, but from him to whom Jesus said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God? Alas, how many parents I might name who now weep bitterly their sin and folly in relying upon God to deliver their children from dangers into which they had plunged them without his permission. Another time, the tempter will induce you to frequent questionable company, because God can guard you from all evil, or to dissipate your inner life by frivolous if not corrupt reading, because God can preserve you from the influence of the poison or to listen to divines who preach dangerous innovations, because God can close your heart against the seduction of their discourses. These are so many varieties of his advice to Jesus, cast thyself down. It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. When exposed to any danger by the will of God, be firm and immovable, but never create perils for yourselves. Never try God, never engage his glory for naught. And if placed on the pinnacle of the temple, do not cast yourself down, but descend quietly and humbly by the stairs of the edifice. But there is in this last temptation one feature which deserves our particular attention. It is the use which Satan makes of the scriptures. He sees that by them Jesus has twice repulsed him. He forms the audacious project of turning against his conqueror that sword of the spirit of which he has just experienced the irresistible power wonderful dexterity of the tempter who finds instruments in everything and who arming himself against us with our own resources endeavors to make us weak through our strength as god makes us strong through our weakness cast thyself down from hence for it is written he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee and in their hands they shall bear thee up lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone wherein consists the perfidy of this quotation some answer that Satan maliciously mutilates the passage which he adduces. The psalmist had said, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. And these last words which the tempter suppresses show that he can reckon upon the promised assistance only as long as we remain in the path of our calling. This remark seems to me subtle. 
It would seem also that if it were well founded, Jesus would have answered by re-establishing in its integrity the mutilated text. The assistance guaranteed in the 91st Psalm has its fixed conditions, conditions from which Jesus would have wandered had he cast himself down from the pinnacle of the temple. God intends to strengthen against the danger those of his children who are unavoidably exposed to it, not those who rush into it by choice and with necessity. But as this restriction is not found in the expressions of the psalmist, how will Jesus prove that it was in the mind of the Holy Ghost? Will he do so by appealing to reason or to natural feeling? No, he will do it by an appeal to the scriptures themselves. Jesus does not answer. The meaning thou givest to this passage cannot be the true one, because it is too far-fetched. He answers, This meaning cannot be the true one, because it is contrary to another scripture. This intention of the Lord is still more evident in Matthew's narrative, which adds to that of Luke the words, Again, very significant in this place. It is written, Again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. We must combine these two testimonies, which complete and explain one another. And Jesus has no right to rely upon the intervention of angels, except on condition of not tempting God. This is very instructive. There are in the Bible, written not by philosophers for philosophers, but by simple men for simple men, passages which need elucidation, and which, when not well understood, can supply the tempter with arms against us. The elucidation must be sought not from human wisdom, but from the scriptures speaking in another place. Besides, if we allow human wisdom to qualify the scripture, where shall we stop? We shall soon see one rejecting the doctrine of the devil's personality as opposed to his reason, another discarding that of the eternity of punishments as wounding his feelings, a third hiding that of the atonement under glosses which destroy it, and there will remain no divine authority. Scripture can be qualified only by scripture, and to an it is written, the only solid objection we can oppose is, it is written again. Satan beholds a Christian applying himself diligently to the work of his salvation, praying without ceasing, meditating on the scriptures night and day, and watching to avoid the pollution of the world. He has vainly attempted to turn him from prayer, to make him doubt God's words, to inspire him with the love of this present world. He then takes up his Bible. You have just seen that he has one, and begins speaking to him after this fashion. Why, friend, what burden is this you are laying upon yourself? Must you serve God till you are quite out of breath? A glance at you is enough to disgust any one with religion. I will teach you a way both easier and more orthodox. For, after all, your satisfaction is the work of God, not your own. Be not so strict. Follow the inclination of your heart, and leave God to do the work. It is written, It is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Ah, yes, follow the inclination of your heart, and I can readily believe that the devil will be less anxious about you. Ah, my brother, answer that holy Satan, as Luther somewhere calls him, it is written again. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Strive to enter at the straight gate. Satan proposes to abate the activity of a minister of the gospel whose powerful preaching is making a breach in the gates of hell. He has vainly endeavored to stop him in his work by discouragement, by vain glory, by the hatred of the world. He then has recourse to scripture and says, Man of God, why are you at so much pains about the spiritual food which you should give to your people? Can you not say things holy, true, and wholesome without thus wasting your strength over your Bible and your books? Go more simply to work. 
Trust to the fluency of speech God has given you. Surrender yourself up to the Holy Spirit, and say what He puts in your heart. Thus you will honor the Lord more to say nothing of the extra time which you will gain for His service. It is written, It shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. This, my friends, is a snare nicely adjusted to your natural indolence. If you fall into it, you will have reason to fear lest your preaching should be struck with imbecility, as has been the case with so many of God's servants who under specious pretenses dispense with troublesome work in order to indulge in spontaneous effusions, which cost no effort. But here is your deliverance. Answer. It is also written, Give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine, for in so doing thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. And so for all the rest of the scriptural temptations of Satan. Be upon your guard against all the devil's interpretations, and refuse them simply by the scripture itself. What one passage omits will be told you in another, as if the Bible judged him alone worthy to penetrate its inmost sense who endeavors to bring together and reconcile its various teachings. If it is written, Man is justified by faith without the works of the law, it is again, Faith without works is dead. If it is written, Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ, it is written again, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves. If it is written, Your father knoweth what things you have need of, before ye ask him. It is written again, Ask, and ye shall receive, seek, and ye shall find, knock, and it shall be opened unto you. If it is written, I am persuaded that no creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is written again, Happy is the man that feareth always. If it is written, To the pure all things are pure. It is written again, abstain from all appearance of evil. By the example of Jesus refuting the threefold attack of the tempter, you have just learned, my dear brethren, the use you should make of the scriptures against temptation. But to follow this example you must know the scriptures as Jesus knew them. Do not be astonished that I speak of the knowledge which Christ had of the scriptures, for we cannot repeat it too often. Though he was the Son of God, he was likewise the Son of Man and it is as the Son of Man that he overcame in the wilderness. How familiar must the Bible have been to him who could quote from it with so much precision, who could adapt it so exactly to the infinite variety of human temptations. Jesus is as familiar with the Scriptures as we are with a city which we have known from our infancy, have crossed and recrossed from end to end, and of which each street, each square, and each house is engraven on our memory. Thus ought you to know the Scriptures, you cannot hope to fight effectively against the enemy with a mere smattering of the word of God. The more precise you are in the use you make of it, the stronger you will be. For the special temptation which assails you, there may be a special declaration of the Holy Spirit, a declaration for which no other would be a complete substitute. You must discover it. The scripture must be for you an arsenal, so well explored that you can immediately lay your hand upon the weapon which you require for your defense, or a dispensary so well ordered that you can find immediately the precise remedy for your disease. You cannot constantly have your Bible before your eyes. You must carry it about in your heart if you desire that it should never fail you. But in order to that, what a study of the Scriptures, what constant reading, what deep meditation! 
Well, this is only what God has himself prescribed to us. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. This is only doing what those holy men, whose example we are called upon to follow. Oh, how I love thy law! It is my meditation all the day. Mine eyes prevent the night watches, that I may meditate in thy word. At midnight I will rise to give thanks unto thee, because of thy righteous judgments. This is only copying the example given us by our forefathers, even in the days of the wilderness and of martyrdom, those old witnesses respecting whom it has been said that if the Bible should ever be lost, the combined recollections of a few among them would have sufficed to write it out again from the beginning to the end. What then, O oh my God, is the state into which we have fallen? What ignorance of the Scriptures among our people! What ignorance of the Scriptures among our pastors! Lord, restore to us the former days. But farther, that mere knowledge of the Scriptures by which we may remember them from one end to the other is not what it is most important we should imitate in the conduct of Jesus. If he triumphs through the Scriptures, it is because he apprehends their meaning and their spirit, not because he knows the words which they contain. The Bible contains the precepts of the kingdom of God, but those precepts are clothed in an earthly form, and he alone penetrates it who is able to disengage the heavenly maxims from the human covering which surrounds them. This is what Jesus does in my text. He goes deeper than the surface of the volume. He sounds the thoughts and intents of what is written. I need no other proof of this than the first of his three quotations, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. You must grant that if you had been tempted like the Lord, you never have thought of defending yourself with this passage, and that it might have often passed and repassed under your eyes without suggesting to you the thought which Jesus found therein. You would have found there the wonderful fact of the manna granted to the Israelites instead of bread, a pledge of hope for any nation placed in similar circumstances, if those circumstances should ever be renewed, an encouraging proof of God's love for his creatures and of his faithfulness toward his people, but there your interpretation would have stopped, limited by the history and the miracle. How much more penetrating is that of Jesus? He goes to the very foundation. He arrives at the very intent of the Holy Spirit. And deeper than the miracle, beneath the history, beneath all that is transitory, he discovers this general and permanent principle. All virtue resides in the word of God, which is not restricted to the means it usually employs. At that depth... Israel's temptation and that of Jesus meet together, if I may so speak, underground and at the root, so that the word of Moses interpreted by Jesus Christ applies as well to the second as to the first. I may say yet more, it applies equally to the temptations of God's children in all ages. And yet in this application of the words of Moses extended, and varied as it is, there is nothing either forced or arbitrary not even either allegory or double meaning, nothing but the profound meaning of the Holy Spirit hidden in the profound language of the Scriptures, the true substance in the true form. Such, my dear friends, is the interpretation of Jesus Christ, spiritual and substantial, alike accessible to the learned and to the simple, alike attractive to the understanding and wholesome to the soul. Compared with it, how superficial and cold is our common method of interpretation, even when it is the most learned and the most conscientious. No wonder. 
for the one is encumbered by the things of earth, while the other rises to the everlasting thoughts of heaven. How beautiful a book would the Bible be, and alas, how new a book to us, if studied in this spirit! The Bible, if I may be allowed the expression, is heaven-spoken, but we must separate heaven from the word which invests it while it reveals it, and this is what Jesus Christ teaches us to do. It is an interpretation, moreover, which no commentary can supply for us. We must seek it upon our knees, saying to God, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Then we shall receive God's witness within ourselves. Then what is written in the heart will agree so well with what is written in the book, that we shall recognize in both the work of the same Spirit. The Bible, we said just now, is heaven-spoken. The Bible thus listened to would be heaven-seen, felt lived. We have reached, our dear brethren, the end of our proposed task. For three Sundays I have spoken to you of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. This is not too much for so vast and instructive a subject. As for me, I shall remember with peculiar feelings the three weeks during which I have steadily contemplated the struggle my Saviour underwent, the victory he obtained, and the weapon by which he conquered. I have found in this contemplation something particularly solemn and salutary and I hope, through God's faithfulness, that it will not be without blessing either to me or to yourselves. Return often to the wilderness. Whenever the number and the strength of the temptations to which you are exposed seems ready to overwhelm you, remember that Jesus was tempted in all things like as you are. Whenever you have any doubts about the possibility of resistance, remember that Jesus bruised Satan under his feet and has promised to bruise him under yours also. Finally, Whenever you are uncertain respecting the means which you should employ in order to overcome, remember that Jesus repelled all the blows of the adversary and forced him at last to retreat with the sword of the Spirit alone. And you, my future fellow laborers, I cannot dismiss this subject without addressing to you a special exhortation which I recommend to your most serious attention. The temptation of Jesus is placed between the end of his personal preparation and the beginning of his public life. There is in your course a corresponding moment. It is the interval which separates the conclusion of your studies from the commencement of your ministry. Be careful of this interval. It may decide your whole career. Consecrate it as a spiritual retreat. Spend it in the company of Jesus wrestling in the desert. And when you enter the church, let men recognize in you the men who have just left the wilderness. The wilderness and not the world. If you are full of the recollections of the world, if you have just breathed the impure atmosphere of its vanities and pleasures, you are not fit for the service of Jesus Christ. The wilderness and not Nazareth. If you are governed by family affections, if in selecting a field of labor your first consideration is a father or a mother, a wife or a child, you are not fit for the service of Jesus Christ. The wilderness, not the school. If you are still covered with the dust of the academy, if your faith, your knowledge, is only that of books, you are not fit for the service of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has need of ministers separated from the world, unfettered by creature engagements, and nourished by the teachings of the Holy Spirit. Either be men of the wilderness, or not be men of the church. Amen.